Okay, a good talk to everybody and all who will be listening to this class. This is the class of Orot Milchama, The Lights of War, written by Rav Cook. Nice little picture. Okay, and just a quick review. We've done the first three chapters, and it's been a whole week since we've looked at this, so a little review doesn't hurt. Let's take a look, just bullet points of the three chapters, not for discussion purposes, because it's just for reminding us. Once we start the next chapter, feel free to ask any questions. Chapter one was called Footsteps of Mashiach. He says when there's a great war in the world, and he's referring to World War I, the power of Mashiach awakens. More states that war is also the beginning of the redemption. Accordingly, the Balfour Declaration, which recognized the Jews' people's rights there, was a direct outcome of World War I. When one understands the redemption of Israel is the goal of world history, one can discover a new spiritual dimension to the world's advancements, revolutions, and wars. The death of the righteous brings atonement to the nation. We talked about how, quote-unquote, innocent people die in the battle. The footsteps of Mashiach are the natural down-to-earth causes of Mashiach, which appear in the world, including the ingathering of the exiles to Zion and the rebuilding of Eretz Yisrael. Chapter 2, which was two weeks ago, Heroes of Holiness. When we glance back at our foundations, we discover that our forefathers were heroes of Torah and champions of war. Our downtrodden state and helplessness in Gullus distorted our conception of holiness and stripped us of our earthly physical valor. A Judaism which makes no claim to a territorial homeland like the Judaism of Gullus does not need a military aspect. That was all the 1800 years of Gullus. However, a nation which is commanded to conquer, settle, and rule over specific land in order to live its true Torah life is faced with the likelihood of war. Today, as in the days of Joshua, Samson, King David, and the Maccabees, enemies surround us and make war a part of the mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael. Israel wars are the wars of God, and Israel's army is the army of God on earth. Two strengths are called for in wartime. Strength for the physical battle, the strength to battle the ugly emotions and passions incited by war, should be put together. The great souls of Israel will complete in their spiritual building, mighty in Torah, mighty in holiness, and mighty in physical courage in their service of Hashem. The yearning for the heroes of our past and the desire to emulate them makes their holy valor a part of our lives. Our identification with them and our desire to emulate them awakens our own inner potential. And chapter 3 last week was the politics of evil. Israel's redemption is a developmental process spanning from its initial kingdom to Israel to its wanderings in the Gullahs to renewed sovereignty over our land. The loss of our first kingdom was accompanied by a subconscious relief in not having to rule in the barbaric world climate of the time. In Judaism, government is an integral part of religion. Jewish sovereignty or its Israel is a revelation of God in the world. There are times when Israel is forced to adapt the politics of war not from a lust for killing and conquest, but to put an end to all war. When the time comes to return to our national life in Eretz Yisrael, we must unite all our forces together, the religious and secular, the holy and the profane. The uprooting of war cleanses the world and paves the way for Israel's redemption. When we return to sovereignty in Israel, it is without barbarity. Our new statehood is based on foundations of justice, goodness, righteousness in our unique divine light. A quick summary of the last three weeks. If you want more detail, go to our podcast site and you can see the rest. Okay, now we go to chapter four. Let's, let's make sure that everything is working. Okay. Just give me a second. Okay. Chapter four is relatively short. Chapter five is relatively short. Chapter five is only made up of two sentences. So our uh, ambitious goal is to do two chapters today. Remember on the right side, just to remind everybody, the bold Hebrew are the words of Rav Cook, and the not bold is Rav Shirky's commentary that we're talking about. And the same with the English works the same way. Use either side as you see fit. Now we come into a whole new dimension that we would never have thought of. Lulei chei had we not sinned with the golden calf. 
היו האומוס יושבוס ארץ ישראל, משלימוס עם ישראל ומודוס להם. The nations who lived in Israel would have reconciled with the Jews, would have allowed us to conquer, and not only that, but would have thanked us for conquering them. Okay, in other words, almost half of Sefer Yehoshua, which deals with the conquest of the land of Israel, would not have been necessary had we not sinned with the golden calf. Why? And it would have happened so, right away as well. So, right? yes. Mr. Kamdra, had he not had the sin of the golden calf, they would have given us the land without any discussion. Yet, our sin of the Cheta Egel was done with Bechiras Chavshis, free will choice. It wasn't necessarily that we had to worship the golden calf. If we wouldn't have worshipped it, we would have had such a powerfully positive influence on the nations of the world. Let's take a look. I don't know why it's not doing what I want it to do. One second. No, not that. Oh, there it is. Oh, okay. A lovely little lines over here. Whoopee, wow. Okay. Okay, now. Okay, the question arises. Now, he said there was a free will choice, right? There's a well-known concept in the words of the sages that the exile and other troubles of the people of Israel, such as the sin of the calf, had to happen, Right? That, in other words, we know that Gomorrah said that Jews were not capable of doing that sin. And had Hashem not, so to speak, forced, we, we wouldn't have done it, right? So how does Rev Cook bring up the possibility that we would not have sinned in this, had we not have sinned in the sin of the golden calf? Had we not, what do you mean had we not? Hashem set us up to sin. The answer is from the point of view of knowledge, this claim is true, but from the point of free will choice, it could possibly not have been. In other words, Hashem knew, Hashem knew we were going to sin. Hashem stacked the deck against us, but still even the deck was stacked against us. We didn't have to sin. It would be hard, but we didn't have to sin. If you recall, we spoke about this many times. What was the quote-unquote coincidence? Now, there was two parts. There was the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the national revelation. Nasev Nishma, we will do and we will listen. And then 40 days later, Moshe was supposed to go down to the mountain and bring back the tablets. So it seems, if you aren't really delving deep, it seems, wow, what a bad coincidence. <laughs> but just as Moshe is about to bring us down the tablets, at that moment, Satan decides to make trouble and stacking the deck against us. <coughs> was it just a coincidence? Obviously not. But why was it that the, temp that the temptation to sin of the golden calf would coincide with coming down on the 40th day, which was the 17th of Thomas? And the 17th of Thomas was supposed to be a very happy day. Yes, it was supposed to be a very happy day. Why? because Moshe would have brought down the tablets. Now let's, um, you know, let's play a little iftari, okay? That's Rebetzin, what's her name? Uh, Young Grace, great line. Iftari. What if we had not sinned with the golden calf? Well, Rav Cook is telling us exactly what would have happened. We would have received the, uh, the what do you call it? We would have received the tablets, would have built we would have just gone right into Eretz Yisrael. No 40 years. And there'd be no battles, no fights. That's it. Tisha B'Av would have been a holiday. We probably would have crossed and, uh, you know, built built the base on Mitash, whatever, on Tisha B'Av. So what happens? So uh, I believe it's the al Sheikh, maybe a different commentary. He says like this. He says, Judaism requires two things. Two types of amuna. There's what we'll call cerebral amuna and emotional amuna. And those are two different commitments that a Jew must have. 
and for us to be the chosen people and to earn the respect of the world, we must have both types of amuna. So, the first type of amuna, where God asks all the nations of the world, do you want the Torah? And the nation of the world says, what does it say in it? And God told them a few things that it says, and we don't like that. But when God offered us the Torah, sight unseen, we said, we'll take it. But how do you know what it is? It doesn't matter. Whatever, Hashem is infinitely smarter than us, and what he, whatever he's offering us has to be good. So what test did we pass? What threshold level did we conquer? Intellectual emunah. We understood. How could we not want to take the Torah from God? It's only logical. And for that, God blessed us and gave us the gift of the Sinai experience. We're halfway there. So now God says, okay, now when the tablets come down, that's going to be it. This is going to solidify. Those tablets, we have no idea what amazing power they would have had had they not been shattered. Now, just like the Jews had to pass a test to get the first uh, national revelation and to pass the first test, the Luchos, which really comes to the word charus, which means etched. The letters were etched in. So now if we want this belief in Hashem to be etched inside of us, when something's etched in, it can't be removed. It's part and parcel of the the writing is etched into the script. So God says, I have to give them not not an intellectual test, but an emotional test. An emotional test, he uses Satan. And he gets the Jews to make a little, wee little mistake on which was the 40th day of Moshe's return. And gets the Jews to say, Moshe's not here. Now you gotta remember a few things. Moshe as the prophet, he's been their prophet for about a year and change. What's his track record? What's his score? Undefeated, untied national champion. Whatever he has said came true precisely. Not even one deviation off. Okay. He did some interesting things. Got us out of really terrible situations. Uh, The Sea of Reeds was a real Kobayashi Maru. And uh, he got us out of there. So... So Moshe says, I'll come back on the 40th day. Okay, now, Moshe is not just Moshe. He's God's right-hand man. So it's, it's almost as if God is talking, so to speak. So according to your calculations, the 40th day came, and Moshe's not here. It's already a little suspicion. But Satan then comes along, and he tells them, Moshe's dead. What do you mean Moshe's dead? Here, here's a picture. CNN, live, from the mountain. From the mountain, there he is, lying on a coffin. He's dead. And where is he dead? He's dead on a mountain, the desert of Sinai. Sinai, there's nobody near you. No civilization near you. And the leader's dead, and the water ain't gonna come, the mun's not gonna come. You're going to die in the desert. Now, let's think of all the Jewish mothers and their little babies. (coughs) Jewish fathers, helpless. So what do you do? Would you not call this an emotionally trying experience? Do you believe in God? You know, so that's like the... um, the uh, story of the uh, teacher who was teaching uh, in university how to educate children. And uh, he was telling them how you have to um, be patient with them, you have to not get angry at them. And it just so happened it was one nice spring day and he had just uh, laid a new concrete uh, sidewalk. And it has to sit there. Nobody should go onto the sidewalk. And as he's waiting for it to dry, his kids 
come down and go walk right over the cement. And some of the students are walking from the other side of the street. And the professor sees there's children. Says, what did you guys do? I told you not to do this. Come over here. Quack, 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 quack. Students are in shock. He says, oh, professor, what happened to your teachings? He says, listen, what I teach is in the abstract, but this was in the concrete. <laughs> Why does that story resonate with me? Because when I was about a seven-year-old boy, they laid the concrete sidewalk in front of our house. And I was playing with Igor. And Igor threw the ball over my head. And I was so into it, I just turned around and ran right on the concrete. Thank God my father did not hit me. OK. But anyway, so this is the idea. You could have a lot of me talking in the abstract. But when it gets to the concrete, What's going to happen? And if you cannot, if you want to get these tablets, you must show that you have total belief in Hashem, even when your emotions are running crazy with you. And this is where we failed. And that's why the tablets were shattered. Okay. Now, they had the chance. They could have passed the test. This was a very difficult test. You want to be a light unto nations? Well, then you got to be able, in the worst situation, to say that Hashem is one and, and everything Hashem is for the best. So therefore, it could have been, I, God, knew what was going to happen. So as we always say, you know, just because God knows, his dimension is beyond ours. But we still had a free will choice. Okay, so because of that, things changed. Now, why did things change? I don't know why this is. Let me just fix it up a little bit. Okay. Well, maybe we'll just go a little further, and then we'll see. One. It says, Kishem Hashem Nikra Alehem. Had they not sinned, the name of God being upon them. We are Yisrael, as we explained at Shalashudas. We mamash see Hashem. We represent Hashem. If they would have looked at a holy people, it would arouse an awe of our grandeur. There'd be no such thing as war would have to happen. Jews were not trained to fight wars because they did not need to fight wars. The hashpa and that divine influence would have gone in a way of peace like it will be in the days of Mashiach. So we got to understand when Mashiach will come, there's no need for wars. The final Mashiach will be no, because it will be so clear. But the sin caused a delay of thousands of years. Mm. Okay? V'chol, musabos ha'olam, and all the course of events over the last 2,000 years, hinan ocheza'su bezula ha'vizor, they're all connected, one, to bring the light, the or Hashem ba'olam, to bring the light of Hashem into the world. V'chet ha'egel yimchalagamri, and at that point, the sin of the golden calf will be totally erased. And as we say from the prophets, Umamela, what do we say? Kol ro'ehem, all those that see them, the Jews, yakirum, they'll recognize them. Kihem zera baruch Hashem, they're the seed of the blessed ones of Hashem. That's what Mashiach takes. We'll have to be like that. A goy will look at a Jew and say, these are the holy people. Fa'olam yetuken ba'erach shalom v'rik the world will be repaired with a pathway of peace and feelings of love. And the pleasantness of Hashem will be felt in every heart. As a pleasure of the spirit. And to beautify the soul. And the soul will live in them forever. So now, says the commentary of Shirki. 
The chet egel who abitula madriga seno hanemucho. The sin of the calf is an expression of our lowly level. Hamatzricha mochamas haletzam kniseno eretz, which now requires wars for us to enter into the land of Israel. Had it not been for the sin of the golden calf, meaning to say, had we not descended to such a low level, the nation of the world would see our moral justification to give the land to us without fighting a battle at all. Okay, let's see what our little commentary over here has to add on for us. So, again, we have another important question over here. This is a fascinating question. Hashem said, I'm going to destroy you guys, right? So what did Moshe pleaded? He said, what? Forgive us. What did Hashem say? Solachti ki I forgive as you requested. No, so that means God forgave us for the sin of the golden calf. So what's the problem? So if Shirky gives one answer, I'd like to suggest another one, but I'll, I'll read what he says. But that's what it said. Hashem said, I, I forgave according to your words. So it's forgiven. How can we need the wars? Remember, there's a difference in the words slicha and kapara. Slach lanu, lanu, kaper lanu. In English, they all mean the same. But in Hebrew, every word is different. What's the difference between slicha and kapara. Hashem gave us slicha. He did not give us kapara. He says that's the difference between forgiveness and atonement. Slicha and kapara. The way he explains it, forgiveness means the punishment is due to the person, but he does not receive it. In other words, you do something to hurt somebody, and you know what? You deserve a punishment. You went and stole something from me, I'll punch you in the nose. Okay, so forgive me. Okay, I won't punch you in the nose. Okay, that's slicha. That's forgiveness. Punishment is due, you don't receive it. Atonement means that even though a person is forgiven for his sins, the evil he did still exists in the world. It's th the evil is still there. He gives an example of this. Where am I? For example, Ruman killed Shimon. He actually did two things. He did himself a disservice by actually becoming a murderer. He did evil to Shimon by actually killing him. When Ruvain repents, he removes the evil inside him, and this is what is called forgiveness. Okay, I don't like the way he explains that. I would say it a little bit different. He doesn't get punished for it. He doesn't get punished for it. But the evil he did to Shimon still exists. And for that, he needs atonement. That is to correct the existing deficiency in the world following sin. So let me just explain a little better what he's saying. I, it could, could be that's what he means, but I just when when you forgive someone, that means to say is that you I won't punish you. That's slicha. But let's in our own personal lives have we not had people have hurt us? Okay, so if you take revenge, you are totally not forgiving the person. So you can say slicha. I forgive you, I will not punish you. But don't ever talk to me again. Okay. Mechila, slicha, mechila, mechalano, is, okay, you could talk to me again, but our relationship will never be the same. So that's already mechila. It's not to say, I don't trust you. I won't share my secrets with you. Means that the sin inside of you is so cleansed out, the relationship is restored to the way that it was beforehand as if it never happened. Now, the first two are more dependent on the victim, the third one is dependent on the criminal. What does that mean? Okay, you did something bad. Okay, I can forgive you. I won't punish you, but I don't want to talk to you. You know, I can even talk to you, but I'm guarded. 
The third one, kapara, means there's a complete cleansing within the person. That the person, let me say one other point. Every time, when you do something bad, it affects who you are. You become a cruel person. You become a person who is not trusting. There's a deficiency there. And because of that deficiency, I may be able to forgive you the act that came out of the deficiency, but I can't trust you with that deficiency. So how can I come to a state of kapara? Kapara is you have to clean out that deficiency. And that's the hardest thing. And that's what Yom Kippur is really about. To clean out that deficiency. So how do you clean out that deficiency? Well, Yom Kippur puts you in a world beyond this world, and hopefully your experience with that world cleans out the deficiency. And Hashem puts us in that state, creates these ideal track conditions where we can clean out the deficiency, and that brings kapara, atonement, terrible word in English, and therefore when that happens and we have fixed everything up, then the relationship can be restored back to the way that it was. So what did Hashem say to the Jewish people? Hashem said, I'm going to destroy them. I said, no, 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 you can't do that. Hashem said, okay, I won't destroy it. But on the other hand, the deficiency, I can't repair that alone. The Jewish people have to do a lot of work for that. And until that gets done, the world is not ready for you to take over the land of Eretz Yisrael. It's not just will be better, but you got to totally change. Those faults, those faults that existed have to be removed. So what is that fault? What was the fault? The fault was a lack of emuna, emotional emuna. You know, you could have you could have people that love you and know that you that you care about them, and they intellectually know that you love them and care about them. But they can they can hurt you still, and you can be emotionally not ready to handle it. And therefore, it's very hard um, to deal with it when you emotionally are hurt by somebody, or or you or you 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 care about somebody else, but you're not emotionally capable of being there for them. So you know you got to push yourself. It's too hard for me. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah, but you understand how you're letting this. But it's so hard for me. So that's the problem. That's a real flaw. Like in today's society, we all don't want to take responsibility for that. We don't want to take a responsibility for a lack of emotional bitachon. Emotional bitachon means that, you know, the most simple example, person is struggling to keep Shabbos and knows if he doesn't keep Shabbos, intellectually understands that keeping Shabbos is the right thing to do. Of course, you got to show that God's the creator. But the bottom line is, if I don't keep Shabbos and I'm a jeweler, and if I'm closed over the Christmas season, I'm wiped out. It's not an intellectual idea. It's an emotional idea. There's nothing. I won't be able to live. And therefore, my relationship with God is not that strong enough to trust him that he can help me in situations that I don't think can be helped. That was what the golden calf represented. And all sins go back to the golden calf. Jews are good people. Jews love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, But we have a lot of trouble with emotional immunity. And until that sin gets repaired, we cannot be the uh, divine glorification of Hashem. And therefore, when you get emotionally strung out, all of a sudden, you start screaming at people, start doing stupid things, even though you know that God is there. But just emotionally, it's not, not working. So this is the core issue. This is what Mashiach is waiting for. And now, without that, we have major problems. So he concludes, Yes, you're right. Because of the synagogue and calf, there are wars in the world. Ach, ideali. 
But these wars will bring us to the ideal future state. Where there's a revelation of Hashem and global happiness. So what's going on over here? Now let's think about this. The Jewish people, let's, let's go through the story over here. Let's remember, there were five expressions of redemption. Not four, five. And the fifth one is, I will bring you into the land. That's the fifth. This is all supposed to go in a very quick order. We leave Egypt, seven weeks later we get the Torah, 40 days later we get the second tablets, and we march into Eretz Yisrael, finished. Now, you have to understand, the world was at awe of the Jewish people. Their mama's shaking in their boots, it says it in the Shira. Their mama's they're trembling. I mean, you've got to be trembling. You know what God did to the world power? Egypt was the world power. He cut them to bits. And when the spies went to the harlot, Rachav, who had all the dignitaries to hear their secrets, they're all sharing, we are scared to death of the Jews. And that was 40 years later, yeah. after the sin of the golden calf. They were trembling and terrified. Now imagine 40 years earlier. The Jewish people are just walking into Israel. The cloud of glory is all over there. And Moshe says, can we uh, take over? Take it! We don't want what you did to Paro. We learned the lesson. Whatever, whatever you want, take the whole land. Well, you're going to have to keep the seven Noah. We'll do it. We saw what happened to Paro. No arguments. There's no war because the world can't deny that reality. So what held it back? What held it back? It was the Jews themselves. Because the Jews betrayed Hashem in the worst way possible. Now again, God set them up. Remember, this is an eternal covenant. You gotta really be ready for this. So he gave my humongous test. It was such a hard test. And Hashem didn't help them. They had to really pass this one on their own. And had Hashem made it not that hard, they would have passed it. But Hashem said, no, this is, this is for keeps. This is for the land of Israel. You got to have such emotional imuna in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if you will have it, you will realize. And Hashem saying, I only meant this all for your good. Okay? So the fact that they were disobedient, that meant that people, they took away from themselves the radiance. You know, the Torah says, when you go into battle against your enemies, they will run away. They'll be afraid of you. When they see your face, they're afraid of you. The Gemara says, when they see your tefillin on your head, just the tefillin on your head, a soldier is on head, they're going to run and flee in fear. Because a person who has emotional emunah Hashem, that means he mamish reflects HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world. Because we are in the image of Hashem, mamish. And if you look at it, it's like, ah! <laughs> fainting away over there. Okay? So therefore, the sin of the golden calf damaged the Jewish people standing in the world, its credibility, and its moral force. We were supposed to uphold the banner of God's rule. And what happened? We were the first to betray him. Now think about this. CNN is also at Mount Sinai for here as well. See, it's oh, CNN. It's a, oh, there's pictures of Moshe being dead. Fake news. First fake news. Moshe's dead. We have reliable sources. Satan himself. The picture was so clear. Like they really saw Moshe dead. It wasn't like he was dead. Okay. So now, um, the, 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 the Jewish people, the non-Jews say, okay, so what's, what's this? You started worshiping idols? You took a calf and you worship idols like Egypt? And you expect us to give you the land of Israel? So Hashem maybe doesn't punish them, 
But where is the children? If you're so exalted, why did you defy him? If the Torah is the best way of life, why did you sing and dance around an idolatrous calf? All of a sudden, the Gentiles, in their eyes, Hashem cannot be everything we claim him to be. Okay, so you get, you get to see what's going on over here. The Gentiles in the world are looking at the Jews in the land of Israel. Before the Jews lived in the land of Israel, again, I've told a few people about this, and I just want to share it with you. It's an important idea. For those who look at YouTube, um, so there's a two-minute YouTube you might want to look. It's an interview with Richard Nixon. With Richard, and you Google Richard Nixon, and I forgot the uh, the reporter. What was his name? I, I, I forgot it. It's one of these brain freezes. A really famous reporter in the 90s uh, for ABC. Whatever. Don't waste brain cells on it. Just, just Google Richard Nixon. So 20 years after he was no longer president, this is dated 1993, I have an interview with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was the president during the, as he says, the Yom Kippur War. The Yom Kippur War. Okay? So, uh, and he wrote a book, and this interview is to follow the book. And in the book, he writes, so he writes this, he says, no U.S. president will ever betray Israel. That's what he wrote. No U.S. president will let them down, will always support Israel. So the guy says to him, so you wrote in your book this, he says, really I wrote more, I forgot the exact wording, but like, like stronger, even a stronger expression of support for Israel. Okay, then the guy says, yet in the book you also write, now this was in 1993, so, although Israel provides no strategic benefits for the United States. So he says, do you believe in that? Absolutely. So Mr. President, I don't understand. Why are you telling me that every U.S. president is going to support Israel if they don't provide you anything strategic. So Nixon said, you got to understand. Let <laughs> me make this perfectly clear. you got to understand. <laughs> they went through the Holocaust. And the moral thing to do is to support these wow. people. Because not everything from, well, he got that depends on benefits. Yeah. What? You got it from what? Henry Kissinger. I don't know no, what he no, got no, from Henry no, Kissinger. No, no, they're not different. Did you see what that one more I don't idea. know what we got from Henry Kissinger. I think we'll think of that. Henry Kissinger was worse than Nixon. Uh, Henry Kissinger wasn't good. But he was worse than Nixon. About Henry Kissinger leaving before the war and, and his whole left his whole family, he knew intricately that because of his relationship with him. Which war? 73. 73. Second World War. 73. What? No, Henry 73. Kissinger lost his, a lot of his family in, in the Holocaust. Yeah. So Nixon knew about the Holocaust through Henry Kissinger. And he wouldn't Henry. have known otherwise. I'm not saying, but... Okay, anyway, but, uh, anyway, not saying let's Kissinger not talk about good. Kissinger. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me going. He was responsible for the Jews oh, getting slaughtered at the Young I know, I'm not, War. No, no, uh, okay, no, but anyway, so anyway, so he said, you don't understand, America's, we have certain values. There's right and wrong. He says, the right thing to do is support Israel. He says, it's not about the benefits. We, st we have a moral obligation that it doesn't happen again to them. So then the guy asks, so let's put it this way. If you were the Israeli prime minister and you heard that America feels this way about you, meaning you don't really give them anything beneficial, how comfortable do you think they would be knowing you have a moral responsibility? So I think they'd be very comfortable. <laughs> Okay, so now, so what changed in, in 50 years? Moral fiber of the United States. You could say the moral fiber, but what also changed? Israel finally got a country. And you know what? The world says, doesn't look any different than our country. Yeah. Tel Aviv is New York. Yeah. What's so special about these people? They don't do anything special. Hmm. Okay. 
And that's where the problems begin. And therefore, and you know, the world, as much as we, you know, don't want it, they look up to Israel. You're supposed to be the holy people. You aren't any holier than us. As a matter of fact, you have bigger gay parades than most countries in the world. Okay? You abort babies more than other countries do. You know, and that that's that's the problem. That's the problem. So so yeah, Nixon was right at that time. But the whole moral fabric and the whole idea of morality has changed. And now with you know, and, and the last uh, fifteen years, you see it's different. No, we don't we don't feel and now even though Israel provides a lot of benefits now. And even though Nixon said, he said, I know they're not officially an ally of ours, like not an official ally, but uh, what is it? But they're the only democracy in the Middle East. So that was their saving grace. But the, the point is that we can't go back to the golden calf. When we go back to the golden calf, that requires more war. You follow? So when you're seeing a lot of wars, you got to realize just use the golden calf equation. The closer we are to the golden calf, closer are we are to war. The further away from the golden calf, further away from war. All right? Now, in a very simple sense, there's two ways to influence the world. Peacefully and through violence. Right? So the amount of force you need to subdue an opponent depends on how much strength, valor, and loftiness a person or a nation possesses. Let's give a simple marshal. Let's say a heavyweight champion walks and he wants to be first in line on the bus. Is anybody going to fight with him? I mean, he's a bit like six foot five, you know, with a, with a reach, like he's mamish. He cut in the line. Oh, you go ahead, man. Okay, little resistance. Because they're awed by his reputation and everything, right? Okay, no problem. Then a small man, little guy, insists on cutting in in front of the bus and was going to throw him out under the back of the line. Who are you? Okay. So the more force and charisma a person projects, the less physical strength you have to use. Now that was, you know, Trump's ideology and Reagan's ideology of strength. What's that? Uh, what's the word? Peace through strength. You don't have to flex your muscles, but no, it's there. Now it's interesting, an interesting story with Ruf Cook when during the British mandate in Israel and there was a high commissioner there. That means the guy in charge of having it. So he goes to Ruf Cook and I said, I heard... The Jews want to build a temple on the Temple Mount. Do you realize that this will bring war? <laughs> now, there's a mosque over there. I don't know if you've noticed, there is a mosque over there. You know, it's unfortunate when you see those pictures. The mosque, like people say, wow, it's so beautiful. The Golden Dome. The Golden Dome. When I was a little kid, little kid, I thought that was like part of the base on the bush. Because, wow, I mean, it looks nice. You got this wall, you got this golden dome, you get the right uh, angle of the sun off the dome. Wow, that's the Kachika. I could understand that. Okay, so the British High said, we want to build a temple there. So if Cook answers, you don't have to worry about anything. When the time would come for the Jewish people, to attain their full splendor and glory and for the temple to be built, the Arabs will be so embarrassed of having a mosque there, they'll be the first ones to destroy it themselves. <laughs> you understand? That's how it's going to happen. I have a little different take. <laughs> this is my uh, Spielbergian understanding of this. I, I feel what's going to happen is, I feel what's going to happen is that Jerusalem will be under attack. They're going to send rockets from Amish to Jerusalem. And they're going to have very precise rockets. And it's going to go aim right for the Knesset. And it's going to go right for the Knesset. And all of a sudden, something misdirects it. And it goes right for the Kaisel. And it hits the mask, blows it up. 
and all the ex- other fragments that come out of that big explosion hits the kaisel, and we know the kaisel never falls and protects everybody in Jerusalem. But of course, they'll blame Israel for it. <laughs> Why couldn't you have knocked it out? Yeah. Okay, anyway, I could dream. <laughs> I could dream. I don't know what that's going to be, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now let's think about this. So what do we have? What do we have today? We have a lot of people who say they want to go to the uh, to the Temple Mount. It's a big discussion about this. There's two different rabbis. There's what you call what I don't know what you want to call them. You want to call them uh, the Mizrahi rabbis. I don't know what you want to call them. Uh, some of them, some of them say you should go to the Temple Mount because we know exactly where. But the the big Gedolei. Torah have said you're not allowed to go. Okay? So what is it? They're trying to force the issue. Right? If you want to force your way in, that shows there's a spiritual weakness going on. Because if you really are spiritually strong, you don't really have to fight any battles. So physical power is required to the extent that moral backbone is missing. Again, let's give one other example of this. A parent does not always need to spank his child to get them to listen to them properly, right? Because if you just tell the child not to do it, the boy understands the father has a higher um, level of existence. He has a higher moral authority. My father knows better. But when the child sees... um, and let's say the child's personality is strong, but the father's character is weak, and the father's character is full of contradictions, then you can't persuade the child to stop. Because he said, but you do the same thing. What you say to me, boy? <laughs> say it again. You do the same, whack, 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 whack. Okay, I'll, I'll listen. Having to use strength means you don't have a moral argument. Okay, so, uh, so as we're trying to prepare ourselves, so had the Jews not sinned, we would have had the moral high ground. We had the moral high ground. And, and even though Hashem forgave us, he gave us ample opportunities to correct that. And that was one with the sin of the spies. No, we failed again with the skin of the sin of the spies, where we didn't believe that Hashem could take us in. Strike two, okay? Then they're fine, this is now, after 40 years, ready to go in, and what happens, Bilaam says, let's test them with morality, and they fail with that one too. Okay, strike one, strike two, strike three. But listen, you guys gotta go into the land of Israel. But at this point, like what kind of moral authority, do they, even though we're still infinitely greater than the non-Jews, infinitely greater. And also compared to what we could but compared to what we could be, look, we failed three times and now we're going to conquer the land of Israel. Still in all, they still, Hashem helped them, but not the same way. Okay? So this is the problem. We were the sinners too. So what's our moral right to the land? And therefore, it, this and this sin always comes back. Right? And now, so, and as long as Moshe was around, we had, you know, when we had to fight a few wars with Moshe, we wiped them out completely. But then when Moshe dies, we have to have Yeshua. Yeshua was great, but not as great as Moshe. So clearly, it requires much more fighting than has to happen. So therefore, there's a, a long gullus. And for us to come back, we really have to be better people. The fact that there's still wars going on, obviously, as a collective whole, we lack this emotional emuna and a lot of Jews intellectual emuna. So the only way we can defend ourselves is with wars. It's an unnecessary evil that has to happen. Okay, any questions on this section before we go to the next section? I got another 10 minutes or so. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. As time goes on and the generations go down, we can only expect we get worse and worse. So right. how can we ever As the generations go on, we can only expect things to get worse and worse. We get we have this with more decisions. How can we ever get back to the original if we are getting worse and worse? Great question. <laughs> the answer is like this. 
the entire playing field has been lowered. This is, this is a famous question. How come Mashiach Kamal hasn't come in earlier generations? The answer is because we're not expect. It's a cumulative effect. We have to fill the, the, the Jewish gas tank with enough emuna. Okay? When it gets filled to the top, we go in. So there's been a lot of Amuna being pumped in for 2,000 years. But there's also these nasty guys who drill little holes in the bottom of the gas tank and the stuff comes out. Okay? But, uh, and the things that we have to do now are not the things we had to do before. The tests are different. The tests are different. In the olden days, women had to go into a freezing mikvah if they wanted to be with their husbands. Nowadays, you got gorgeous mikvahs. But uh, gorgeous. I wish the guys' mikvahs were as good as <laughs> the ladies' mikvahs. But we got more subtle challenges that we never had before. There's no such thing that the yeshiva bacher had to you know, think of pornography just with three clicks. And to avoid that, as we said in the Shalashudas, we have the whole, the whole, every Yetzirah in the world is in the palm of your hands. And if we can resist that, no tzaddik ever in the history of the Jewish people was able to do that. So there's different tests that we have, and each one carries its own value. And we have to be willing to sacrifice and the fact that Hashem has created such a snowflake generation, if you're able to be normal, that's an amazing <laughs> thing. That is so hard. And the whole world is against us. And, and the few of us who, who hang on, that will, that will work. There's no question about it. Okay? So that's that idea. Okay. Um, you know what? I think we'll call it a night because the next one, really uh, gets into a very big historical issue about Christianity and why really Christianity brought World War I. Way too much for me just to do five minutes. So we'll stop it over here. Mirza Hashem. We'll return next week. Same bat time, same bat station. Shua told to everybody.